Great. Okay. So it's actually been almost two and a half months since I taught a lesson on Elisha. And I want to do pick up from where I left off. And I know we've been teaching through Genesis. And I'm going to let Chuck continue with that. But I want to go back to the study on Elisha. It's an encouraging study. I do want to teach um, in a, an expository fashion because I think that is just super encouraging and challenging and a good way to teach. And so I, when I do teaching, I want to do it in that way. And so I'm going to pick up where we left off, but because it's been so long and because what we talked about in the first part has such a big part of understanding um, the stories we're going to read today, I want to go back and, and do some review of what we talked about before. There's also one piece that just is so encouraging, I thought it'd be great to talk about it again. <laughs> so, uh, so that's what we'll do. So we're going to pick up 1 Kings. And actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize for us. And, and remember, I want to just also remind us why what, what, what we are to learn when we read through the Old Testament. We are trying to become, as 2 Timothy 3 says, thoroughly equipped for all good works, um, that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And we're going to look at a couple stories today that um, I think we have to ask ourselves, what do those mean today? How can they equip us today to be more godly and, and to be fully equipped for good works? So that's one thing. The second thing is I think God's heart is revealed in these stories about Elisha. And knowing God's heart and knowing how he thinks, how he thinks about us, who he is is such an important part of being a Christian and for our Christian walk. In these stories, and we'll hit some of them today, but in future lessons as well, there's a whole bunch of colorful characters in the stories that, uh, of the people who kind of come across Elisha's life. And so we can learn both from the good examples of those colorful characters as well as the bad uh, in terms of lessons we can learn and then we talked about this in our first lesson, but are, is there foreshadowing in these, in these stories of Christ? And I'm going to let you judge as we go through these stories whether you see Christ and these scriptures pointing to Christ. So let's go back. Uh, Elisha lived around 850 to 800 BC. He was a disciple and a servant of Elijah. Okay, so you have Elijah, who was his, his mentor, and Elisha is the one we're talking about today. And both Elijah and Elisha were sent to the northern kingdom. So the, the setting is, uh, it's a very dark time. So Solomon had taken over the kingdom from David, but Solomon had fallen into sin, right? And so what happened was the kingdom split in two. So the southern kingdom, which is where Judah was, went, and Judah, of course, was where the Christ would eventually come from, was led by the king Rehoboam, okay? And these are, I always get confused with all these names, but I just want to give you kind of a general overview because it really, I think, makes the story of Elisha and what happens more understandable and more powerful. So you've got in the south this king Rehoboam, and there's another um, son of his that follows him named Abijam, and these guys are both really sinful. They, they did... Um, they followed the practices of the nations around them, and they built places of false worship. It, it was a really, really dark time. So that was happening in the south. But then 
after those two, there was two good kings. There was a king, and we talked about this in our last lesson, but there was Asa, and there was a guy named Jehoshaphat. And these were good kings, and they actually undid a lot of the evil that their fathers had done. And I think that's just super encouraging, that, that no matter kind of what hand we're dealt, what family we come from, whatever our backgrounds, that, that we have hope that we can please God and we can break out of that. And these two really did a good job at that. And Jehoshaphat will appear, um, not in this lesson, but in the next lesson when we talk about Elisha. So he, he plays an important role in one of the stories. So I want to just allude to that. So that, that's what's happening in the southern kingdom. And then in the northern kingdom, this is kind of where we're going to focus because this is where Elijah and Elisha spent their time. And that was led by King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was made king of Israel. So he takes ten tribes to the north. These are all of Israel except the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But Jeroboam realized he had a problem. The temple was in Judah, and his concern and fear was that the Jews would return to the temple and go back to his rival, Rehoboam, and join Judah and Benjamin. So out of jealousy and out of this concern, he came up with this plan. So what he does, he sets up an alternative structure of worship than what God had commanded. He makes two golden calves of gold. He creates new houses of God and altars. And then it says he appoints priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever desired to be a priest, he consecrated. And this was in direct disregard and disobedience to the command that God had given his people to appoint the Levites as priests. So God was like, no, 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 that's not going to work for me. You can't do that. That's right. This was way against what God had planned. That's right. And so... We're going to pick up in 1 Kings chapter 16, and there's a series of kings that are doing all types of evil and carrying out Jeroboam's kind of alternative worship, and they're worshiping idols, and it's, it's just really a disaster. So I'm reading from the Septuag- a, a translation based on the Septuagint. And so in most Bibles, this will be picked up in 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 29. So it reads, Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil before the Lord more than all who were before him. It was not enough for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, but he also took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbal, king of the Sidians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the house of his idols, which he built in Samaria, and also made a sacred grove. Ahab did yet more provocations so as to provoke the Lord and destroy his own life, for he did more evil things than all the kings of Israel before him. So when the Bible says someone did more evil than all the kings before him, it's, it's, it's a pretty big deal. And so things were very dark, very desolate, and I don't think it's, I, it's, it's a coincidence that it was in these times that God sent the prophets Elijah and then after him, Elisha. And I find great encouragement in that, 
because God is intervening to help people in a very dark time. In fact, the name Elisha means my God is salvation. So God in the darkest time when people are turning away from him are, is reaching out to his people to draw him to, the, to himself and with a, ho- a message of hope and deliverance. And I, I find great encouragement in that, that that's what God chose to do. So, in our last lesson, we also talked a little bit about Elijah, because you can't talk about Elisha without knowing a little bit about Elijah. And so I just want to go over that. Elijah was a towering figure in the Bible. He um, is mentioned in the New Testament, if you remember, in the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transformed, and on top of this mountain, and everything becomes brilliantly white, and who is he with? Right, he's with Elisha and uh, Moses. He's with Moses, and he's with Elijah. Yeah. Okay, so Moses and Elijah. So two of the great figures of the Old Testament are there with Jesus in, at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then when Jesus is in his ministry, he asks at one point his disciples, he said, who do people say I am? And, say, and some said, well, some think you're Elijah. <laughs> so... To the Jews, Elijah was this huge, powerful, spiritual figure, and they thought maybe Jesus was him returning. And, and so Elijah was a, a great man. And why was he so great? Well, when I read about Elijah, I'm inspired in a couple of ways. The first one is his, he was just a mighty man of prayer. He, I won't read this now, but in 1 Kings 17, if you know the story, he prays that there will be no rain, and, and it doesn't rain. And James in James 5, 17, it talks about that, that he was a man just like us, but he could pray that it would rain, and he prayed it would stop raining. He prayed that it would, it would stop raining, there would be no rain, and he prayed that it would rain, and that's what happened. He also prays in, in chapter 17, verse 21, there's this widow, and her son dies. And this is a, a really amazing story, but he goes and he prays and through his prayer raises this dead son to life. Powerful prayer. Man, just like us. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it's very, very challenging um, that that we have the ability to pray these types of prayers. In 1 Kings 18 is the famous situation where he has a sacrifice and he's asked the prophets of Baal to set up their own sacrifice. He has his own sacrifice, and he calls on fire from heaven with his prayer. And it burns up the sacrifice, and he makes totally clear the God of Israel is much greater and is the God, and, of course, mocks the God of Baal. And this is all through his prayer life. So we're called greatly higher by Elijah's prayer life, and we're going to see in Elisha's life as well. He's a man deeply committed to prayer and powerful prayer. The second thing that I'm challenged by Elijah is how he's sustained by God. And there's a story about how he has prayed that it won't rain. And then, of course, he is suffering from that himself. There's no rain, there's no water, there's no food, there's a drought. And so he's fed. You remember how he's fed? He's fed by ravens in first. King 17, miraculously by ravens. God provides for Elijah. 
Then God gives Elijah another obvious person to provide for him, a starving widow who's about to starve herself. And using a handful of flour and a little bit of oil, God works a miracle and provides sustenance both for the widow and her son and for Elijah. And then later, God um, sends an angel to Elijah who brings him a cake of wheat and a jar of water that sustains him miraculously for 40 days. And this is in 1 Kings 19. So we see in Elijah this very simple life of relying on God for his daily needs, his daily bread, his daily sustenance, and miraculously this provision is given. We read this very, I thought, very inspiring quote from Clement of Alexandria. And I want to read this again because it, it, it encourages me as a Christian that the God we serve today is the same God that wants to provide for his people. And let me, let me read this to you. This is from the Nicene Fathers, Book 3 in Chapter 7. And Clement of Alexander lived around the 2nd century. And he, he refers to Elijah. He says, look, for instance, to Elijah, in whom we have a beautiful example of frugality, when he sat down beneath the thorn, and the angel brought him food. It was a cake of barley and a jar of water. Such the Lord sent as best for him. We then on our journey to the truth must be unencumbered. For he who has the almighty God, the word, is in want of nothing, and never is in dire straits, I'm sorry, is never in straits for what he needs. For the word is a possession that wants nothing and is the cause of all abundance. The good man then can never be in difficulties so long as he keeps intact his confession towards God. For it is appropriate for him to ask and receive whatever he requires from the Father of all and to enjoy what is his own if he keeps the Son. And this is also is appropriate that he feels no want. This word who trains us confers on us the true riches, nor is the growing rich an object of envy to those who possess through Christ the privilege of wanting nothing. He that has this wealth shall inherit the kingdom of God. And I love that, this privilege that Christ gives us of wanting nothing. If only we could stay there and live there as Christians. And that is the call, and that's the great wealth that we should want for nothing. And ultimately, we will inherit the kingdom of God. So the early Christians looked at Elijah as a great example um, for the Christian walk and Christian life in this aspect of, of relying on God for his provision. And that's the, one, that's the great man that Elisha trained under, and so we should not be surprised as we look at his life, how he lived incredibly simply, and God provided for his needs, and we'll, we'll see that later. Okay, so finally, as a recap, in our last study in Elisha, we looked at his call, and he was called by God, and well, we saw that it was a very intense commitment. He left his family to follow Elijah, and it would appear that he had a pretty nice, comfortable situation with, his, with the family business, with some wealth, he had all these oxen, and he left that kind of walking into a death trap uh, to serve with Elijah, who had a bounty on his head. And so, very challenging to see him leave those comforts for the life that he was headed for, um, and he did that quite willingly, and that's in 1 Kings 19 and verse 19. And then 
we, we talked about kind of the intense discipleship, the, the, the mentor-mentee um, relationship, the friendship that Elijah and Elisha had. And I want to pick up in 2 Kings chapter 2 in verse 4. And it'd be, it'd be fourth kingdoms, chapter two, verse four, for those who are reading the Septuagint. Okay, so it says here, it says, Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord sent me to Jer- Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And they went to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets in Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that this day the Lord will take away your master from over your head? So he answered, I know, please be silent. Then Elijah said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord sent me on to the Jordan. But Elijah said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So both of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. The water divided this way and that, and the two of them crossed on dry ground. So it was that during that time they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So Elisha said, You have asked a hard thing. If you see me when I am taken up from you, it shall be so for you. And if not, it shall, be, it shall not be so. Thus it came to be, as they walked and continued to talk, Behold, a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, and the fire separated them one from the other, and Elijah was taken up into the heaven by a whirlwind. Then Elisha saw it and cried aloud, Father, O Father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. He saw Elijah no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. Then he raised Elijah's mantle, which fell from Elijah and upon Elisha. And Elisha returned and stood on the bank of the river Jordan. He took Elijah's mantle, which had fallen upon him, and struck the water, but it did not divide. Then he said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah himself? And he struck the water again, and it divided this way and that. So Elisha crossed over. So... I just love this passage so much that the closeness of these two just drips off the pages to me. My father, my father, I don't want to leave you. You need to go. I'm not going to leave you. Don't speak of your leaving. I mean, the, the, the closeness of the relationship is, 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 is very precious, and, and, and I really admire it deeply. We find Elijah strikes the Jordan with his mantle, and it divides. What does that remind you of? Who does that remind you of in the past? Moses. Okay, and then after Moses, who would it be? Joshua. Joshua. Right? Joshua strikes the Jordan and takes the people into the promised land. And so he 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 does that, it divides, and then Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He receives it. Elisha's taken up. There's this gut wrench this gut wrenching scene. Elijah tears his clothes, the mantle falls, Elijah then strikes the Jordan himself and nothing happens. And what a disappointment. <laughs> what is happening here? And Elisha says, where is the God of Elijah? You know, Elisha wasn't looking to Elijah for strength. He was looking to Elisha, Elijah's God for strength. And boom, the water opens and walks across. And, and the baton has been passed. 
and he's he's the prophet that God's going to use. And that's that's where we left off in our our last lesson. And now we're going to pick up with two really short stories, but I think there's a lot packed into there. And these would be so the first miracle that Elisha I would say that, that Elisha did was this parting of the of the Jordan River, right? And we're going to look at miracles two and three. So let's read 2 Kings 2, verse 19 through 25. It says, Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, as my Lord can see, this city is a pleasant place to live, but the water is bad and the ground is barren. So Elisha said, bring me a new pit water pitcher and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring of the waters and cast salt into it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed these waters. From them there shall no longer be death or barrenness. So the water was healed by the word Elisha spoke, and so it remains today. From there he went up to Bethel. Along the way, some young boys came from the city who continued teasing him by saying, Go up, Baldy, go up. <laughs> so Elisha turned around and stared at them. He then cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Okay. <laughs> So we're going to tackle both these stories. And the first one I learned a lot about and I was excited about. The second one I think we'll just skip because it's way too difficult. And I don't want to deal with any difficult passages in the scripture. <laughs> no. No, actually, I think the second one we really need to dig into. Like, what does this mean? What does this tell us about God? What, is, what do we make of that? And we're going, to, we're going to tackle it head on. So let's start with the first one, this miracle of the healed waters. So we find that um, there's this pleasant city. This pleasant city is Jericho. And the, but the problem is there's this pleasant, it's a great, nice city, but the water is bad, okay, and the ground is barren. Uh, no, no water, no crops, right? We've got a problem. We don't have good water. So it looks good, but there's death in the water. Things can't live there. They can't thrive. They can't grow without good, clean water. So Elisha comes and performs a miracle. He takes a pitcher, a new pitcher, he asked for a new pitcher. He put salt into it. And then he cast the salt into the water in the city of Jericho. And then he says, he says, thus says the Lord. This is what Elisha says. Thus says the Lord, I have healed the waters. From them there shall be no longer be death or barrenness. And so the Lord heals the waters. That's the story. It's a miracle. So what, what are we to learn? All scriptures God breathed and is used for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good works. So what are we to learn from this? So salt. Let's talk about salt. We know that salt is a, is a preservative, right, for food. It's used to, to keep food from not spoiling. It's used for meat. It's been used for, for thousands of years. Salt has also been used since ancient days, as well as today, as a fertilizer. And so it can be used to put on the soil. There's different types of salt. There's table salt. There's these other kinds of salt. As well as actually be used to put in manure piles to keep the, 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 um, 
the compounds in the manure that, that fertilizes active for longer. And this, again, this is, was used in the ancient days. It's still used today. And so uh, Elisha puts the salt in. So what do we do with this? Well, well, first of all, a little salt, right? If you have a flowing water, <laughs> a little salt is not going to purify water by its own natural compounds. This is a supernatural mm-hmm. miracle, clearly. There's no way that a little salt in the pitcher is going to do that. But, but what are we to make of this? What I took away from here, first of all, is, is the focus of who did the healing. It says, God says, I heal the waters. God did the healing. God did the miracle. But for some reason, he used this agent of salt to work his power. This is such a beautiful picture of God's healing power. Israel is sick. They've got this sinful king. The people are following all these detestable practices. He sends his prophets, and Elijah comes into the city. And think about what, what Joshua did when he got to Jericho and crossed the Jordan. He destroyed it. He brought judgment on, on the city of Jericho. And that must have been what God felt was needed. But here, the prophet goes into Jericho, and he heals the dead water. What, what a beautiful sign of healing, of, of, of giving them crops, of, of, saying, of giving them hope and, and life. And, and he, heals, he heals the water. It shows me God's patience, his kindness, his love. He wants to heal. He wants to cleanse. He wants to bring life. He wants his people to turn back to him. And Elisha, that's his first miracle, public miracle, as he starts his ministry. Think of Jesus. Think of the people who came into contact with Jesus. I think of a whole bunch of people. I think of Zacchaeus. The guy is really in a bad spot. He's, he's colluding with the Romans. He's exacting money from people, more than they should pay in their taxes. And yet Jesus calls him in, has a meal with him, I don't know what the conversation was like, but I bet it was pretty awesome. <laughs> and Zacchaeus walks out and says, whoa, <laughs> I'm going to give back multiples of times of what I, I took from people. And coming in contact with Jesus brought life, it brought repentance, it brought hope and life into Zacchaeus's life. I think of the woman at the well. The woman at the well, Jesus connects with her. And they start talking about her life. And she's had a whole bunch of husbands. And the person she wasn't with right now isn't her husband. And through that interaction, Jesus breathes life. Hope calls her to change her life. And she's a different woman, transformed. I think of the thief on the cross. Jesus' final days, his final moments on the cross. And he's offering life to a criminal. And, And these people who are dead, who are sick, see and come in contact with Jesus' righteousness, his purity, his love, his strength, his compassion, his goodness. And they turn themselves in. (laughs) They repent of their sin and they follow him. And so I see such a beautiful picture of God's, God's kindness, his love, his hope that he offers. You know, we're the sick waters, right? We were the sick waters. We were dead in our sin. We were pursuing pleasure, pursuing things of this world. I know that's where I was at, and I know many of our lives, we were deep, deep into it. 
And, and God, we came in contact with Christ and we were cleansed. We were purified. How amazing. How amazing. A miracle that we were healed. And he continues to heal us. He continues to purify us as we walk with him. The thing about Jesus, though, and salt is it doesn't just stop there. Let's go over to Matthew 5. It'd be one thing if, if you know, Jesus just purifies us and we're healed, and that's amazing, that's a miracle, and that is a miracle. But look in 5.13, chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Look over in Luke 14. In verse 34, Jesus again speaking, he says, Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, fertilizer, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what's amazing is that Jesus doesn't quite expect it. Not only did he come to cleanse us, but he actually turns around and says, you guys are the salt. You're supposed to be salt. You're, my followers are to be salt. And what does that mean? Well, sharp salt has a sharp taste, right? It's used to purify food, to cleanse. Fertilizer makes things grow where the others would not. Fertilizer you know, brings life. It, it produces crops. It brings life. And so we're supposed to be that. So what does that mean, practically? Like, how do we do that? So in Luke 14, the context of this passage we just looked at, look in verse 25. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yet, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on and talks about counting the cost, about what to, to do that, to take that step. And then in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Then he goes and says, salt is good. So what does this mean? I think there's something about us, our saltiness comes down to our uncompromising obedience to Jesus. Before relationships, before ourselves. I mean, this is, doves tails very nicely into Chris's communion about picking up our cross daily, dying to ourselves. And there's something about that decision and that action that makes us salty, that brings healing and purification to the world. If we don't, he says, if, you don't have this, if we don't have this quality, what would be the inference of this? If we don't have this quality, then we lose our saltiness. If we don't have that obedience, that commitment, we lose our saltiness, and Jesus says we're not fit for the land or the dunghill, the manure pile. We're not able to preserve or to fertilize and make things grow. Okay? Let's go back to Matthew 5. The first passage is about how we're the salt of the earth. What's the context of that passage? Let's, let's go back to, to verse 1 in chapter 5. 
This is what Jesus says right before he says, you are the salt of the earth. Okay, he says, in seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. That's what he says. So this is how we're to be the salt of the earth. This is how we're to preserve, to fertilize, to turn what is dead and diseased into something that is life. Just like the water that Elisha was asked to heal, right? Humility, mourning, mercy, purity, peacemaking. <laughs> Challenging stuff, right? <laughs> Challenging stuff. It requires us to take up our cross, but it brings life to a dead world. You know, it's, you don't have to go that far to have an opportunity to be a peacemaker in this world. <laughs> you don't have to go that far in terms of relationships and family and work and neighbors to be a peacemaker. It, the opportunities are abundant. <laughs> and I, I'm so encouraged because I know the people in this room, I know all of you have done this. You've done this in God's way. And it's really hard, but it's, isn't it sweet? Isn't it blessed when we get through it and we do it? And I think the challenge for myself and probably all of us is to keep doing it. <laughs> time after time after time. The consistency of showing mercy, of loving, of being pure, of being humble. And to me, that's the great challenge. But that's the challenge of being a Christian. And, and that's what brings life and the huge impact, just tremendous impact that we could be salt for others. Of course, Jesus models it for us on the cross, many places. He's on the cross, he's dying, he's bleeding, great pain. He reaches out to the thief, he heals him, he, he saves him, offers him salvation. He looks down at his mother and connects her with John, gives her hope for her provision. He then on the cross says, Father, forgive them, and forgives the world. So, wow. He, he just lays, he lets, lets, gives us the example to follow, and, and that's what he, he wants from us. So, out of his love, he healed us, and I think what's, what helps me in this, and what helped me as I say this out, was to realize that the God is doing the healing of other people. I'm just salt. <laughs> I'm just salt thrown on the, the field, thrown in the water, thrown on the manure pile, whatever. I'm just salt. <laughs> and, and somehow, for whatever reason, God has decided to use us as agents through our weakness <laughs> to be this salt and through his power brings healing to, to the world. 
And I think it's just a, a, it's an amazing and remarkable thing. It's also an awesome responsibility, and I pray we could, we could live up to that, to be his salt agents that he's, he's, he wants us to be. So let's go back to 2 Kings, and let's talk about 42 young boys being mauled by two bears. <laughs> You know, the first half of this, the first story we looked at was just so much about God's hope and vision and love and purification and his desire to heal his people. But here, Elisha goes on and he comes along and there's this group, this pack of boys teasing him. He said, go up, Baldy, go up. They're mocking him. And imagine this group. It says 42 were mauled. There must have been more of them. Imagine a group of of young boys, men, whatever they are, coming near you. When I was a college student, I remember walking to my dorm. It was kind of dark. It was kind of rainy. And I was walking. I wasn't really paying attention. I had an umbrella. And all of a sudden, my shoulder got hit. And I looked around. There was this pack of, of young people basically starting to pick a fight with me. And they just ran into me, and they hit me in the arm, and started making, mocking me, started saying things to me. And I, I did what any smart person would do. I ran as fast as I could, <laughs> and I outran them. <laughs> but there was something about, like, I'm in trouble here. We're in a, kind of a dark spot, and there's a pack of people. I don't know who they are, and, and it, was, it wasn't a great feeling. And so Elijah, I don't know if he was in a threat, a physical threat, but, but whatever was going on there, he turns to God, curses them to God, hands it over to God, and God just smokes these guys. You get mauled by two bears quickly. So, so what do we do with that? So let's, let's think of the context of this story. You have Ahab who is an incredibly, is the most evil king of Israel that's ever been, been raised up or has ever become king. The people have completely abandoned God and are worshiping false idols. They have these groves, these sacred groves they worship, where they worship. They have these false temples. They have people in the temples that shouldn't be leading the worship. I mean, completely have abandoned God's commands God's plan for them. These kids, are, they have no respect for the prophet, right? And these kids are just following their example. They're just doing what their parents did and what their king was doing. Now, Elijah had come and worked a bunch of miracles, including calling the fire down to make clear who the real God was. And that, they clearly, people were aware of that, completely ignored God's trying to get Israel's attention and win back their hearts, and it's not happening. So Elijah has already worked a public miracle. He had parted the Jordan River. He had, he had healed this water. I'm not sure if they had heard that, but whatever they knew or didn't know, they were mocking the prophet of God. Israel was not getting it. And so... Elisha, he doesn't lash out physically, he doesn't draw his sword and pierce these kids. He, he curses God, he cur- calls out a curse to God and leaves it in God's hands. And guess what? God, God reacts and God responds quickly. So, that's the setting. 
And I decided I, I want to see if there was anything that some of the early church fathers said about this that might help me understand this passage. And guess what? There was. <laughs> Tertullian, who was an early church father, he wrote in the late hundreds, and he lived in the late hundreds and the early 200s, wrote a, a, a long piece against Marcion, who was a heretic to the faith. And Tertullian was writing to defend the Christian faith to this, this heretic. And um, what Marcion was saying in this one section, at this one point that Tertullian is addressing, is he says basically your Christian God is responsible for all kinds of evil in the world, all the evil in the world. It's his problem. He, he's all-powerful. He causes it. He's the problem. And Tertullian says, well, no, you're actually wrong. You're, you're confusing evil. He says, you're lumping all evil together. There's actually two types of evil that we as Christians see. Okay? One is, is sinful evil, which Satan is the author of. It's morally wrong. He doesn't say this in his piece, but this would be things like murder and deception and violence, the things that go against God's commands, his moral commands. These are morally wrong, and, and Satan is the author of those. But then there's penal evil that God is the author of. Penal evil is used against the evils of sin to bring about justice. So he says, yeah, you're right. God does bring about evil, but only when it brings about his justice. And he's using evil in a way that Marcion would understand. So he gives a couple examples. The flood. The Bible says that men's hearts were so wicked, they were thinking evil all the time. He was grieved. It broke God's heart that he had even made man. So he brings a flood and punishes. And, and, and Tertullian says, look, he brought the flood to punish the wickedness to bring about justice. Now, to those people, it seemed like evil. But to God, that was justice. He talks about the ten plagues sent to Egypt. He writes that Egypt, although most depraved and superstitious and worse still, the harasser of its guest population, he talks about all the evil and the wickedness that Egypt is doing to the Jews and, and suppressing them and their false gods. He, he writes about Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, who had already denied God, already in his pride so often rejected God's ambassadors, accumulated heavy burdens on his people, and to sum up all, as an Egyptian, had long been guilty before God of Gentile idolatry, worshiping the ibids and the crocodile in preference to the living God. So, again, the Egyptians probably felt like this was evil, these plagues, but they are brought about by their own injustice and sinful nature and sinful acts to bring about God's justice. And then Tertullian goes on, and he writes, he says, even his own people did God visit in their ingratitude. Against young lads, too, did he send forth bears for their irreverence to the prophet. So he alludes to this passage. He says, God is a just God, and he will deal with evil in this world, and he will bring about bad things to bring about justice, even against his own people. And Tertullian calls out Marcion for putting God on trial. And he says, God will choose the severity of the punishment, and God will determine what's reasonable and what's just. And then he goes on, I think this is a very interesting point, as we think about the young lads who were 
mauled by the bears. He says, well, and this is about God's own people. He says, well then, even though God required the sins of the fathers at the hands of the children, the hardness of the people made such remedial measures necessary for them in order that having their, their posterity in view, they might obey the divine law. For who is there that feels not a greater care for his children than for himself? So what is he saying there? He's saying God would even bring judgment upon children because the hardness of their parents' hearts was so hard, he was just getting them to respond. And, and sometimes people will, most often people respond more greatly if their kids are in trouble um, and going through challenges. And, and, and so that's how he explains it. I don't know. That, that There seems to be some wisdom in that to me. And that God allowed this mauling because there was such a desecration of, of God, of his prophets, of disrespect for God's commands. And he's trying to bring them to repentance, to return to him so that he could heal them and, and make them whole again. Lessons for us, lessons for me, that I take away from that is I need to stand in awe of God and his power. I need to obey his commands. I need to honor his name. I need to adore and revere him more than anything else. The scriptures say that God will make himself known at the last day, that every knee shall bow and every person will appear before the judgment. God wants all men to be saved. He wants all men and women to share in his great banquet. That's his desire. That's his goal. And he's trying to work to get us there to make that happen. I'm inspired by the different examples in the scripture. There's so many of them where God does work challenging situations, bad things to work on his people's hearts, individual people. I think of Jacob, deceitful Jacob. <laughs> you think about what he had to go through to be used by God and was used very powerfully by God but to deal with his character of deceit and dishonesty. You know, Moses at age 40 kills a man and what God puts him in the desert for 40 years to deal with him, to deal with his nature, uh, to make him more useful. David, murder, adultery. I mean, there's so many examples of the punishment that God brought against his people and against individuals to bring them to the place where they needed to be. I wanted to close in Hebrews 12. It's, it's remarkable. This picks up exactly where Chris left off in his communion. I'm, chapter 12 in verse, when I, when I pick up in verse 4, the Hebrew writer writes, he says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, for our profit, 
that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So he scourges and chastens his sons and his daughters in love. So we might be partakers of his holiness. And he says very clearly, it's not a joyful thing when you're going through it. (laughs) It's painful. But the fruit, the peaceable fruit, it says, of righteousness is given to those who've been trained by it. Beautiful picture of what God is trying to produce in us that we might have life. So just to finish that section, I think Jesus does modify things a little bit when he comes. Elisha cursed these kids and then left it to God. Jesus comes and says, we don't curse. (laughs) We don't do that anymore. (laughs) We actually pray for our enemies and we feed them. Paul in Romans 12 verse 14 says, we bless them. We do not curse those who persecute us. So we do that, we feed, we pray, we bless them, and then we leave it into God's hands. So it's a little bit different. But I think it points to, to the way Christ dealt with people, and, and may, it give us, may it give us pause, this strange short story of these boys, of the power of God, that God will, will receive his justice, he will have his justice at some point, and, we should not, and he won't hesitate to punish men, women, children, even his own people, to bring about holiness, healing, cleansing that he wants, and ultimately eternal life for us. So, so that's, that's a lesson from Elisha. We will return to Genesis next week, and we'll continue with Elisha's life in the next opportunity we get. Mm. Amen. Mm.